You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And that's partly where the name Lazarus comes from. Just when you think you've wiped them out, they come back. They're very, very clever in evading escape because they've been doing it for decades. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, I speak with Gene Lee, public policy fellow at the Wilson Center and author and journalist Jeff White. They're bringing us a preview of season two of their podcast, The Lazarus Heist. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. We're not talking conspiracy theory when we say it's all connected. When it comes to InfoSec tools, effective integrations can make or break your security stack. Though not as common, the same should be true for security awareness training. Not only does Know Before deliver the world's largest library of security awareness training, but they also provide a way to integrate the various elements of your existing security stack to help you strengthen your organization's security culture. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before about how you can integrate security awareness with your tech stack like never before. All right, Joe, uh, let's jump right into our stories this week. You want to start things off for us here? Yeah, uh, Dave, no AI story for me this week. Okay. (laughs) But I will say that there are multiple stories out there about generative AIs being used in kidnapping scams. Oh. So you can just Google that and look at it. Uh, I don't know how we defend against this. But I'm going to move on to some regular old social engineering stories. Okay. Uh, And this one comes from Lauren Jackson at WBRC. I always want to say WBRB because it sounds like I'll be right back, but it's WBRC. <laughs> okay. This is a story uh, about a scam that has been running around local businesses in the area, and it is – here's what happens. Here's how this works. Hmm. Somebody calls in to a tire shop. That's who's getting targeted this time. Okay. And they order tires, like $20,000 worth of tires. <laughs> As you do. As you do. <laughs> it's some nice tires. Right. Don't get caught in the snow with those tires, Joe. <laughs> You'd be able to roll over everything. Yeah. With <laughs> then they say, hold on, I got a bunch of credit cards I have to try to pay with this because I'm I'm, I, I, I'm going through some financial stuff right now. So let me just start running through some uh, some credit cards. And, of course, the person on the other end is entering credit card information. Some of them get approved for $1,000. Some of them get declined. Uh, and then before everything's over, they've paid for $20,000 in tires, and then they send somebody to go pick up the tires. Huh. Right? This guy goes and picks up the tires, and then all the credit cards get uh, charged back because somebody goes, I didn't order $1,000 for the tires. I live in Wisconsin. Why are these tires on my credit card? Okay. So um, I, I put the story in here. This is a short story. It's just an obvious chargeback scam. Somebody's going to get some free tires or $20,000 worth of free tires. Mm -hmm. But the idea that stuck out to me is this operation requires that they have tire mules. 
Mm-hmm. Mules who specifically go around and pick up tires from places. Yeah. And then they have to fence these tires. Mm-hmm. It's the standard stolen goods scheme. Right. With a different angle. Seems to me like it wouldn't be hard to find somebody with a, a pickup truck or a van and pay them, you know, whatever, a hundred bucks. They can just go. go rent a U-Haul. Well, yeah, right, right. right. Put just, them all just in go there. Pick up the tires and then take them to whatever place, you know, a storage unit or something where they fence the uh, the stolen tires. Yeah. Hmm. It's, so I it seems this, like a lot of work, but I guess it does seem like it, a lot it's of working. Work. <laughs> but people are making money. I mean, if you get free tires and you could turn around and sell them for half their cost, you got twenty thousand dollars worth of tires in a day. You've made ten grand. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's so, true. Not bad work if you can get it. No, uh, I, you'd think that this would raise red flags with the tire companies, the retailers. If somebody's trying to, if somebody's playing, you know, ha- <laughs> opens up a, 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 a bunch of credit cards, like a, you know, fanning them, like, right. like they're playing yeah, well, poker, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I think that what happens is there's a salesperson who's going, ooh, I'm going to get a big commission on this one. Yeah, that's and, true. And that's, and they're willing to do whatever they have to do, I mm-hmm. think. But that would strike a red flag in my head or put up a red flag in my head. Absolutely. My second story comes from uh, Dave Centendary or David Centendary at KDFW from one of my favorite places in the world, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay. And it's a good news, bad news story. The first part is going to be bad news. And it's about a uh, 70-year-old widow who in 2019 was scammed out of $75,000 in a romance scam. Oh. Uh, she is now telling her stories because she doesn't want other people to fall victim. And this is a great quote from her in the article. They're not naming her in the article, which is also good. Yeah. Uh, it's great that she's coming forward, though. Um, but she says, I fell for it. It's embarrassing. I'm not a stupid person, but believe me, they've got their act together. Mm. So I, I believe that this this woman is not stupid. Yeah. And, and honestly fell for a romance scam. Uh, when you When you hear how this thing works— it's uh, or what's going on here. It kind of makes sense. Hmm. Uh, the scammers were ready for her. They had all kinds of documentation, to make things seem legit. And then the people who communicated with her, or the person who communicated with her, I don't know if it was one or more people. Yeah. Uh, they convinced her that they had a big business deal in the making, but they needed a loan to make it through to the, when the business deal came through. Ah. Now they were so convincing. She had her church group praying for the success of this business deal. Oh, wow. All right. So that's, uh, I think that's convincing. Hmm. So she was talking to other people about it, and it didn't set off any red flags with them either. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was sending numerous packages containing cash to different addresses in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And someone at the UPS store that she was using said, something's going on here. And they called the police. Oh. Right. Okay. So law enforcement then got involved and law enforcement found out that there was a ring of about four people in the DFW that were handling the money and laundering it. Hmm. They were calling themselves the Yahoo boys. Okay. Very clever name. Yeah. I don't know why they called themselves the Yahoo boys. Maybe they just opened up massive amounts of Yahoo accounts. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't I don't get this. Although uh, Yahoo is kind of a Texas thing to say, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeehaw, more more so. Uh true, true. Yeah. True, yeah. Uh being someone who goes to Texas quite frequently <laughs> is the owner of not one but two cowboy hats. <laughs> eyeing a third, by the way. Uh yes, I'll say that. So this ring of four people, of the four people they've identified in this in this group of people, one of them, a Mr. Obi, 
Uh, I have no hope of ever properly pronouncing his first name, so I won't, mm. I won't attempt it. Mm-hmm. But he has now been sentenced to 20 years in prison. Wow. I don't know if this is federal prison or Texas prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what Texas jurisprudence is. Uh, if it's like federal prison, like you don't, when you get sentenced to 20 years in federal prison, you're going to be put away for about 20 years. Yeah. You don't get time off for good behavior. There's no parole, none of that. Hmm. That's what you're going to do. Uh, I don't know what it's like in Texas. Texas is a state court. And I don't even know which system this guy was sentenced in. The article okay. doesn't mention that. Um, but here's what's interesting about him. He moved during the two months they were watching him. million to Nigeria. So he was obviously the money mule, and they they nabbed him for fraud and money laundering. And he was taking delivery of these packages and somehow getting that money over to Nigeria and Turkey and uh, one other place that I can't remember uh, from reading the article. But it was – he was sending money all over the world – and now he's going to be the guest of some legal system for the next 20 years. Hmm. Uh, prosecutors are still working on cases for the other three people that are wow. not named in the article because – I guess because they haven't been convicted. But mm-hmm. uh, my guess is they're also going to be convicted or, or hit a plea deal or something. And no word in this article whether the this victim, the 70-year-old widow, has any chance of getting any of her money back. Uh, probably not. There is no word in the article about that. Yeah. It's, being that it's from 2019 and here we are four years later, mm. she's probably not going to get that money back. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. Interesting stuff. Well, it's, it is good news that is good uh, news. at least somebody's being brought to justice here. Yes, indeed. So. That's the good news part of the good news, bad news equation here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, my story this week uh, comes from the folks over at uh, Nine News. This is in Colorado, one of the local affiliates there. This is an NBC affiliate. Okay. Um, And this is the story of – this is a weird one, Joe. Okay. This is a story of a heist that took place at a casino in Blackhawk, Colorado. It's a monarch casino. A heist. A heist, sort of. So quarter to one in the morning in March, a cashier named Sabrina Eddy, 44 years old, she – Went to the casino's vault, and she was someone who she was a cashier at the at the casino, so right. she was authorized to be in the vault. She goes to the vault, and she was videotaped uh, reaching into the vault and grabbing bricks of fifty thousand dollars each. Okay. She put the bricks in a bag. She went out to her car, put the money in the car, uh, drove off, came back a little while later, went back to the to the cage, to the to the vault, got some more money, went back to her car, drove away. So she was able to do this twice? She was able to do this twice. She took $500,000. Huh. Okay. Which, you know, $50,000 bricks, 10 bricks. Right. Yeah. That's a It seems to me like bag. a small take for <laughs> grabbing $50,000 bricks. So this is where it gets weird. Okay. Uh, she calls the casino... After a little while, she explains to the casino that while she was on her shift, she'd received a phone call on the casino's phone right. from a man claiming to be the casino's head of operations. Okay. He and another man who claimed to be the cage manager told her that the casino was having a problem with a UPS order and they needed the money or the casino would be in some sort of breach of contract and that... That she would, they asked her to take the funds to a lawyer. 
She took the funds to a local hospital. They, they say it's a place called St. Anthony's Hospital. Okay. Where a man met her and took the money. Uh, after that is when I think maybe it dawned on her that something was up. And that's when she called the casino back. She said, I'm coming back. And she said, um, she told the casino she'd taken the money off property and she thought she might be arrested. Which is indeed what happened. She goes back to the casino. She gets arrested. Uh, as far as I know, she is still in jail. Right. Um, she was not, she did not have the means to post bond. Uh, the local prosecutor uh, was okay with her uh, having bail with just her personal guarantee. Right, or, you know, yeah. on, on recognizance. On her recognizance, thank you. And um, the judge actually said no. $500,000 is too large an amount of money to be involved here uh, to do that. I'm curious what your take on this, Joe, is, and, and then I'll, I'll share my thoughts, which I suspect probably align with yours, but right. what do you think is going on here? Well, there's two things that could be going on. Yeah. Uh, one of them is that she is just stealing money from the casino and using this as a cover-up. She has an accomplice on the outside that's holding the money. Um, you know, that she's actually stolen half a million dollars from a casino. Right. The other possibility is that this is what it, what she says it is. Yeah. Uh, and that is that somebody called her up impersonating the, the management they said they were. Uh, I don't know. It does it say in the article whether or not they sounded like the people on the phone or does she know them? No, it doesn't say, but it does say that she did try to call them back and that she couldn't, no one answered, you know, couldn't, couldn't get back through to them. So I suspect they were probably burner phones, but who knows? Correct. Uh, If that, if it did happen that way. Yeah. Um, there are ways you can find out. Did calls come in? I mean, do you, can you even find those records? Um, well, certainly on her end, you could. Yeah. Are, are the calls recorded coming into the coming into the casino? Oh, you'd, yeah. You'd think probably that would be a certainly plausible that that right. would be a security thing. Check that out. See if those calls exist and if the recordings of those calls exist. Yeah. Uh, also, if it was a heist, if, if she was the one stealing the money, I don't know that she would be going back and saying— Look what happened. Right. Um, where, where's the Where's the benefit in that for her? It's It's best for her to to take the half a million dollars and leave. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to me. I I kind of tend to think that this that what she's saying is probably true. Yeah. Especially since the prosecutor is willing to let her was willing to let her go on her own recognizance. Right. Uh, does she have a defense attorney? Well, if she doesn't, one will be assigned to her. Right. <laughs> I hope that she has. I hope that she has the attorney and has has utilized the attorney before talking to anybody. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I don't know. This is a tough one. I kind of lean towards the fact that she might be a scam victim here. Yeah, uh, that is certainly my first impulse. That she just found herself the victim of this. That somebody was very convincing and and she did what she thought she was being asked to do. Um, I will say I, I had not considered what you brought up, which is that it's possible that she could have been using the the uh, the story of social engineering to cover her tracks, right? And in that case, go on with her life. Yes, you know she doesn't have to pick up and be on the run, and she yeah. could just as you say, if she had an accomplice, she could say, hey, well, we'll just say that this happened. Um, that's an interesting possibility. I, I guess, you know, I, I would, 
I would like I I tend to give her the benefit of the doubt because it's probably the better thing to do as a human being. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think I think that, I don't know that she's guilty. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't immediately assume that of her in this case. No, and then obviously, of course, she is uh, do the presumption of innocence until proven otherwise. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean. Legally, she's do that presumption, and I would I would insist that that be the case. But you know, when when you think about these things, when you hear the word allegedly, right? Like in our interview today, they use the word alleged hacking from North Korea a lot. Yeah, I don't know how alleged that is, <laughs> but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, you know, but in this case, I would I would be much more inclined to believe this person uh, is is the victim of something than she's in than she would be in on it. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't make sense. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, two weeks ago we had Keith Houston on, who's now a prosecutor in, in Texas. Mm. Um, but he, he started in a casino. And one of the things he said was that they have procedures in casinos and it's easy to tell when someone's deviating from the procedure. Right. So I assume that these, that everybody that works in a casino, especially everyone that handles the cash is rigorously trained in what the procedures are. Yeah. Which is why I immediately, my, or one of my, not I don't immediately, but one of my possibilities here is that she's in on it because it seems like one of the things that you would say is nobody is ever going to ask you to take money off, off premises unless you, they're coming in an armored car. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. Because you don't just take half a million dollars out of a casino. No. That, that is one of the things that strikes me as being odd, that, you, as you say, there would be very strict procedures for right. everything having to do with handling money. Um, it also strikes me as odd that she would do all of this without interacting with anyone else in person at the casino. Right. Right? Yeah. Now, we know that these... Um, Social engineering folks can be very convincing. Very persuasive. And they yeah. can uh, they can explain that stuff away. Yep. They could say, you know, listen, this is uh, listen as your boss. I just want you to know that uh, this is really embarrassing for me. You're really saving me. Just don't don't mention this to anybody because you know I I just I, this is just embarrassing for me. And you don't want to embarrass your boss, right? For example. <laughs> yes. So I don't know. I mean, I hope that. Uh, I hope that she's innocent here, I guess, because, uh, first of all, I'd hate to see someone who was innocent um, end up in big trouble yeah. for falling victim to something like this. Right. Despite the fact that she did uh, violate clearly some policies and right. she did, I mean, she took half a million dollars off premises and it got stolen. So she has a, she bear, I guess she bears a certain amount of responsibility for her actions. Um, but, uh, whether or not she was in on it, I guess that's for the prosecutors to determine. Yeah. Weird. It's a weird one, isn't it? It is. It's strange. Yeah. That's a, a really weird combination of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, I'd be interesting to see how this one plays out. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 before we recorded today, I went and looked to see if there were any updates. And the, the only thing I found was that she'd been denied bail. So, hmm. um, I'll try to keep an eye on it. All right, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. And, of course, we would love to hear from all of you. You can email us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day.
Our catch of the day comes from Morton, who writes, Dear Dave and Joe, I found the following catch of the day quite amusing and yet troublesome. I can't seem to figure out how the scammer is gaining any valuable leverage towards scamming me. Uh, To the contrary, it seems like the scammer is trying to protect me from being scammed. I think Morton is writing here very (laughs) (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So it's a beneficiary scam, Dave, and it begins down at the bottom of it. And uh, I love the first line after Dear Beneficiary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It goes like this. Dear Beneficiary, are you alive or dead? Ah, see, he's very concerned about Morton's well-being. How would they respond if they were dead? (laughs) Right. (laughs) We received several emails from one Mr. Garcia Charles Gilbert, who narrated to us about the auto accident you had two weeks ago. Mr. Garcia made us understand that you are in hospital for treatment, but there is no hope for your recovery. He stated that he is your business associate, also your next of kin, whom you have chosen and permitted to inherit all your properties. He is contacting this office based on your contract, Inheritance Payment Fund, which is about to be paid to you. He requested that the payment should now be transferred into his own personal account. We request your immediate confirmation before we can process this transfer to Mr. Garcia Charles Gilbert's bank account, This is to avoid releasing your money to the wrong person. Because Mr. Garcia Charles Gilbert is too eager and ready to follow every instruction to have this money into his account. If you do not have an auto accident and you did not permit Mr. Garcia Charles Gilbert to claim your money, kindly reply to this message with your full contact information so we can process the release of your fund to you. Best regard, Samuel Muth, Chief Executive Officer, World Bank. And then it says, This email is confidential and is intended solely for the use of the individual or entity to whom they are addressed and not binding any agreement on behalf of the department. I love the disclaimer at the end of it. <laughs> Makes it seem more legit. Sure, uh, sure. This is just a uh, an advanced fee scam. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's trying to create a sense of urgency with the fact that you might lose the money and have somebody else, uh, Mr. Garcia Charles Gilbert. Right. Uh, who names their kid Garcia Charles Gilbert. <laughs> I don't know. I love that every time they mention him, they use his full name. Full name. Yeah. Mr. Garcia, <laughs> Mr. Garcia Charles Gilbert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. hilarious. It it's, is. And it is. We're going to see fewer and fewer of these as AI continues to generate these things. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, I, I'm going to miss these, Dave. <laughs> I'm really going to miss them. Okay. We're, we're in the golden age of uh, of poorly worded social right. engineering that, scams. We're, we're in the twilight <laughs> at least, of that. It's, at least for comedic purposes. Yes. Yes. It's, yes. Uh, it's going away. Mm-hmm. Soon they'll all be masterfully worded, AI, genius-written That's right. pieces of art. And <laughs> That's right. We'll have to find other ways to laugh at them. Yeah. But I'm don't worry. I'm pretty sure we'll find other ways. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, our thanks to Morton for sending that in to us. And again, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for our catch of the day, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at the cyberwire.com. Back to the concept of integrations. Nobefore's Security Coach uses standard APIs to quickly and easily integrate with your existing security products from vendors like Microsoft, CrowdStrike, Cisco, and dozens of others. 
Security Coach analyzes alerts your security stack generates to identify events related to any risky security behavior from your users. With this information, you can set up real-time coaching campaigns to target risky users based on those events from your network, endpoint, identity, or web security vendors. These campaigns enable you to coach your users at the moment the risky behavior occurs, with contextual security tips delivered via Microsoft Teams, Slack, or email. With 35 integrations and counting, Security Coach delivers the insight you need to improve your organization's security culture. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash security coach. That's knowbefore.com slash security coach. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jean Lee. She is public policy fellow at the Wilson Center and also author and journalist Jeff White. They are the co-hosts of the podcast The Lazarus Heist, which, of course, is uh, very popular on the BBC uh, over a year ago now, I suppose. Yes. Uh, I so. And uh, they have just launched season two, and uh, we're going to talk about that. So here's my conversation with Jean Lee and Jeff White. Yeah, so season one of The Lazarus Heist dealt with uh, this computer hacking group called The Lazarus Group, uh, who are suspected of working on behalf of the government of North Korea. Um, they have a, a long and illustrious hacking career and be accused of breaking into, among others, Sony Pictures Entertainment uh, and Bangladesh Bank, the National Bank of Bangladesh, and also unleashing the WannaCry ransomware virus, which went around the world in 2017. And season two of the podcast continues the story onwards. The Lazarus Group haven't stood still. They've done even more hacks, gone after even bigger targets, and are now suspected of stolen, having stolen something like $3.2 billion worth of cryptocurrency. So seasons one and two kind of cover the whole story, and, and it is a story that's, that's still ongoing. Gene, as uh, season one wrapped up and, and certainly received a lot of notice uh, and good reviews, how did you go into the planning of the second season, of, of deciding what exactly it was you were going to cover? You know, it's interesting because season we made season one at a time when North Korea was pretty quiet and they had gone sort of into retreat after diplomacy had failed. And it wasn't really on people's radars. But in the course, since then, in the course of making season two, North Korea has just gone on a rampage when it comes to weapons testing. And so it did, I think, help shape part of the narrative which is to try to make that link between cybercrime and these cyber attacks and where that money is going. So, you know, season one, we went into the history of North Korea's illicit, alleged illicit money making, going into the past, uh, the making of super dollars, making of methamphetamines, some of these crazy capers. But what we do now is bring it up to the present. And to also provide some of that context, why are these hackers working on behalf of the state? They're not just individuals working on their own. They're young men assigned to work for their country. What do we need to know about North Korea to understand who they are? We did in season one get into how they get their training, but we needed to update listeners on where that training has taken them. So in season two, we just take the narrative forward, but also really step back and look at the context. Why is North Korea doing this? Where is that money going? And what should we be afraid of? 
It strikes me that North Korea kind of stands alone on on the global stage here. The 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 degree to which they're isolated. Um, is it fair to say that that most of their hacking is uh, just to kind of keep the doors open and and the lights on? So that I think is part of the reason the world has underestimated North Korea's cyber capabilities is because they are so isolated. It is a country that is largely cut off from the internet. And so it's far, hard for us to imagine that they could produce such aggressive hackers. But that's partly what we explore. But I think that that also gives them even more incentive, right? They're so isolated financially, economically, and politically, diplomatically, that they're looking for those gray areas, those gray zones where they can get the money that they need, like you said, to keep the lights on. It's more than just keeping the lights on, but that is a big part of it. And so that's part of the investigation is for us to kind of link, connect the dots and make sure that we're drawing a line between the hacking and where that money goes. Jeff, can we dig into some of the stories that you're going to share this season in the show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I say, North Korea and the Lazarus Group hackers, according to the accusations against them, haven't stood still. I mean, some of the hacks that we're covering are absolutely astonishing. One of the things we kick off with in season two is a raid on an Indian bank called Cosmos Cooperative Bank. It's back in 2018. The hackers broke into the bank and the way they got in, as your listeners I'm sure will be aware, is fairly standard procedure. They sent phishing emails to employees of the bank. Uh, and one of the employees, it seems, fell for those phishing emails uh, downloaded the hackers' viruses and allowed them in. What they did next, though, was to navigate their way around the bank and get to the ATM approval software. So basically any uh, withdrawal of cash anywhere around the world using a Cosmos bank card comes into Cosmos Bank, obviously. And so the hackers were then sitting on those communications and could see any withdrawals for any cash anywhere around the world coming into Cosmos Bank. And the hackers could then approve them and authorize them. Now, that's a pretty good position to be in, but, but for the hackers, it presented a problem. They've got a great bit of access there, but they've somehow got to utilize it. And to do that, they need two things. They need a bunch of Cosmos bank cards because you've got to take them to a cash point and use them. And to do this around the world, they need accomplices out on the street with those cash cards to take them to ATMs and make the withdrawals. So what the North Koreans are accused of doing is reaching out, we think through the dark web, for accomplices in various countries issuing them with bank details that they could then use to create cloned card, fake bank cards that were linked to real accounts at Cosmos Co-op Bank, and then take those cash cards to ATMs and withdraw money. And they did this during a crime spree which lasted two hours and 13 minutes, during which they managed to get, astonishingly, nearly $14 million out of cash points before mm. Cosmos Bank and its partners caught up with them and closed the loophole. So you've got people running around in 28 different countries with wads of cash they've withdrawn from cash points because of the access that Lazarus Group's accused of getting to Cosmos Co-op Bank. It's absolutely astonishing uh, crime spree, a sort of flash mob of cybercrime, if you like. So that's one of the most sort of remarkable stories that we kicked off with in season two. Okay, Jeff, don't give away too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a really interesting insight. I mean, does does the Lazarus Group tend to be episodic with their capers? Do they, do they lay low for a while and then, as you say, in two hours, you know, do essentially an ATM smash and grab? 
My sense is that they're constantly working, um, looking at their different jobs and when they do them. Um, there's barely a year goes by where they don't have some major operation on the go. And the other thing about this is, you know, we see the results of this. We see that two hour, 13 minute window during which they made these thousands of withdrawals. What we don't see, of course, is the months and months of preparation that goes into that. I mean, those phishing emails that hit Cosmos, they were arriving at the bank for months previously. And then even before they send the phishing emails, they've got to do a bit of reconnaissance about Cosmos Bank, get the employees' email addresses and so on. So I just get the feeling there's this rolling campaign of you know, re- researching targets, working out who to hit, working out how to hit them, getting the, the tools and the, the bits in place, the pieces in place to carry out those hacks. So it does seem to be a kind of ongoing campaign and it's getting bigger and, uh, and more aggressive all the time from where I'm sitting. These are, if I can jump in, these are military missions. These are very carefully calculated, plotted over many, many months, as Jeff said, and planned well in advance. And so if we look at it that way, and that's why I think it's so important to for us to provide the context and background when it comes to the North Korean alleged hacking so that we understand that these are military missions that are not done. It's not just an, an individual working in their basement. It's they're carrying out a mission as a unit. So I think that that is helpful for understanding the intricate nature, the careful planning, the orchestration. But what just talking about as well is the incorporation of their overseas networks and all these middlemen. We went into that in season one and we just go into it in different regions of the world, actually, in season two. But it's helpful, I think, in understanding how they physically carry out these thefts after they launch that malware. Now, Gene, it's my understanding that um, you have the unique privilege or position of, of having actually spent time in North Korea. What perspective has that provided you with? For, for our listeners, are there, are there things that you think we should know about uh, North Korean life, about the, the mindset there that informs this, this type of activity? Yeah, where do I begin? <laughs> um, it's very unusual as an American in particular to have that opportunity. And and, and it was a difficult um, assignment, as you can imagine. Uh, but it was, in, and it was very hard to do reporting. For me, the most valuable thing, though, was just being there on the ground. So unlike other foreign journalists, I wasn't just brought there by the government on a two or three day junket, but I was there for weeks on end working and living with my North Korean staff. And so you get to see a different side of the country. What we get in their state media is propaganda, right? The prettiest pictures that they want us to see, those images of strength. But I saw the other side, which I think is important. I saw how poor it was. I felt how cold it was. I struggled with my own health. I struggled with the surveillance. So you have a sense of the difficulty of life, the kind of repression that they live under, the lack of freedom of choice and of movement that they have, and also the system of rewards that are granted. So I hope that I bring all of that into our understanding of why and how these young men are working on behalf of the North Korean state, and also to provide some of that color so that we understand just how desperate they are and how that shapes their motivation. And so, and also I just want to bring that country to life because so much of what we do when we talk about cyber is hidden from us. Uh, so whatever I can, to, whatever I can do to make it feel real, like this is a real place, these are real people um, who are doing this 
in many time in many circumstances under duress. I hope that I bring that to our listeners and so that it doesn't feel like it's just this mythical place off in a country we can't get to. So I serve as a proxy in a way for the North Koreans who don't have a voice. And I try to bring some of that color into the podcast. That's a really interesting insight. And I, I think uh, it's hard for us to understand, as you say, particularly perhaps as Americans here, you know, as far away as we are and as isolated as they are. I, I'm curious... When it comes to international law enforcement, what have you learned in terms of how they regard these actors? How, I suppose, well, would it be fair to say that you underestimate them at your own peril? We underestimate the North Koreans at our own peril, definitely. Now, Hmm. when it comes to international law, uh, what I've learned is that the North Koreans don't feel beholden to any international law. They only feel beholden to their their own country's law. And so that means that they feel that they are not necessarily a part of the world, uh, that they're, they only care about any repercussion or punishment that they may face from their own government. And their government has a global reach. I do think that the FBI takes the North Korean or the alleged North Korean hackers very seriously. So a lot of the information that we get is from that U.S. chase. And a lot of the information we get is from U.S. indictments. However, the North Koreans are always one step ahead. They're very good at evading U.S. authorities. And until you have the cooperation of many of these other countries in that global network, the North Koreans overseas network, it's going to be very hard to really catch them. And so, you know, we do, I do see this as a cat and mouse game. Somebody else called it recently whack-a-mole, uh, mm. where, and that's partly where the name Lazarus comes from. Just when you think you've wiped them out, they come back. They're very, very hard, very clever, very hard to, to capture, very clever in evading escape because they've been doing it for decades. Uh, and in terms of whether people, whether we take them seriously, I, I hope that our podcast is drawing attention. I think that cyber can sometimes be a bit of a blind spot because it's so hard to comprehend. And so with this podcast, we try, I mean, Jeff knows all of this stuff uh, inside and out, but I'm not a cyber expert. And so, and, and many of the experts in my field just sort of, their minds go blank because it's hard to comprehend. So I hope in a way that we break it down to a level that anyone can understand, that we scare them to a certain degree and draw more attention to the threat that this poses. And I do think it has actually, after season one, drawn attention to the North Korean and their, the North Koreans and their uh, cyber campaign. And I do think that it's actually brought both the South Korean and the U.S. governments together to try to work collaboratively on coming up with some strategy on, strategies on how to stop them. And just to, just to, to add a point on that, I think it's interesting that um, the North Korean's activity, uh, certainly according to the accusations against it, has got more global, more global reach, which has given them both advantages and disadvantages. One of the things uh, hackers from North Korea and indeed lots of cybercrime groups have is what you might call sort of international deniability. So you can try and hack organizations in lots of different countries. And what that presents law enforcement locally with is a challenge. You know, you, you hack a bank in Bangladesh, you move the money through New York, the Philippines, into uh, into Macau. Suddenly you've got four jurisdictions you're working with. Now, can all of those police forces and all those jurisdictions work together? Can they swap information? 
yes, eventually, but nowhere near as fast as the hackers can work. So they've got this sort of international arbitrage they're doing in terms of cybercrime. But conversely, the more international these campaigns get, the more they sort of trip over the tripwires in different countries. So for example, the US government, if you move money through the US in any type of cybercrime, the US government has the ability to go after you because suddenly you've committed a crime in the US, you've used its financial system. So suddenly the US radar perks up as soon as you trip over those tripwires. And so the more international you get, the more brazen you get, the better you can get away with it in terms of playing countries off against each other, but the more likely you are to trip across a particular country's tripwire and get them interested in you. So again, the, the cat and mouse analogy, I think, is, uh, is a really interesting one from that perspective. And I'll just make one more point, which is that the UN Security Council has been trying to stop the flow of money into North Korea's weapons program with some of the toughest sanctions we've ever seen. But unless those sanctions are enforced by member nations, they're not particularly effective. And right now we're in the middle of a global divide because heightened, I would say, by the um, the war in Ukraine and the tensions between the U.S. and China. And so it's very hard to get the U.S., I'm sorry, it's very hard to get China and Russia on board with new sanctions. Uh, and sanctions are, it's very difficult because of attribution issues to really target cyber. So the North Koreans have figured out that it's just incredibly difficult for countries to stop them. They've, they're taking advantage of a vulnerability or a gray area. And it's both impressive and frightening. All right, Joe, what do you think? I had to look this up, uh, Dave, but yeah. I always get Jeff White and Jamie Bartlett mixed up in my head. Oh? <laughs> because Jamie Bartlett did The Missing Crypto Queen. Ah. And uh, Jeff White did this uh, Lazarus Heist okay. podcast, which, by the way, I still haven't listened to, but I'm adding it to my podcast list because I know that when Jeff was on promoting last season, I said, I got to listen to that podcast. Yeah. No, and I haven't good. done it yet, but I'm going to. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to listen to it right now. Uh, they said, uh, or actually put it on my list this afternoon. So one of the things that they talked about that I hadn't heard of is this scam of super dollars. Have you heard of that? No. Mm -mm. That was a North Korean operation to print up really, really high quality fake $100 bills. Oh, yeah. I have heard about that. And then they take them to China, I believe. Or would, somehow they flow through China. Yeah. I, w I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. That's yeah. the only land border they have. They got to flow somewhere. Right. This hacking that is involved in, uh, that's happening here and in, in that they're talking about is all 100% financially motivated. Mm -hmm. it's just, like most of the hacking that, that goes on. I was talking about this in last week's episode is the, the financial motivation is the main motivation of, uh, of these attackers. You know, 10, 15 years ago, why Why did people do it? Money wasn't even on the list. Now it's pretty much the only thing on the list yeah. because it's been so profitable and so well monetized. Mm -hmm. um, and become a global operation. And become global operations and large organizations have finally uh, organized themselves around this. It's organized crime is what it is. Yep. Um, Cosmos Bank got hit for $14 million from ATMs in less than three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, those aren't all Cosmo ATM or Cosmo Bank ATMs, right? They can't be. They have to be like affiliate bank ATMs, just all the other ATMs that will connect to it because an ATM doesn't have to be run by a bank to access the funds in the bank. Right. Um, 
So I, I, I love the description that, uh, that was given in the interview, flash mob of crime. Yeah. Right. right? These yeah. guys were, were very busy for a little less than three hours and rounded up $14 million. Right. Not, not a flash mob that's going to end up on YouTube. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, for the two and a quarter hours that they were working, that planning had been going on for months. I'd be really interested to know how much of that actually wound up at his ultimate destination. How much did they have to pay to the mules mm-hmm. to get the money? Right. Um, I, I'd like to know what a money mule makes, what percentage of the cut they get. You'd also imagine that there could be a lot of skimming, right? Of, right. From, from the mules. You got a big, big wad of cash there that just, you know, spewed out of an ATM. Yeah. But these guys know how much the transactions for the cards they gave you. These guys could do the math. Mm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't cross them. That's true. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. And and if if it is uh, who who the, who the interviewees allegedly say it is, um, then yeah, I, I, they do have a global reach. I wouldn't do that. I, I would be one hundred percent fastidious in my accounting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I cannot imagine going to North Korea for any reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not a place that's on my list, you know, on my bucket list. There are a lot of places that are, but not there. Yeah. And I, I really can't imagine what living there would be is like. I'm impressed that Jean was dedicated enough to her reporting to go actually live there for a long enough period of time to get a feel of what it was like yeah. to live there. I yeah. think that's impressive. It's quite a, quite an experience and opportunity, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the main points I'd like to make is that attribution is difficult. Uh, by its very nature, you, even if you know where something came from, you mm-hmm. you, you, you can't ever say one hundred percent that this came from X Y Z organization or from this country or for whatever. It just you can't do it. And these Lazarus Group hackers are making it much more difficult to trace it around. Mm. So even if they do come move move things through the U.S. and they fire off all those tripwires they were talking about in the interview, it, it doesn't matter to these guys. The U.S. is is never going to get a hold of any of the people they've indicted for these things. Mm-hmm. It's just – they're just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Um, cryptocurrency targeting, that is a, a great thing that Jeff talks about. Uh, these cryptocurrency exchanges, they are in custody of billions of dollars worth of assets. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows who they are, uh, which is – Really interesting, I think, that there's these kind of things out there where people go, yeah, sure, I'll give you some of my Bitcoin. You hold on to it. Yeah. Of course, that becomes a target for just about every kind of attacker. And we've had stories on this show about people applying for jobs at those places. Yeah. uh, Which they talk about as well. It's a fascinating interview, and I am really looking forward to this, listening to this podcast, which I promise this time I will do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fair enough. All right. Well, once again, uh, the podcast is The Lazarus Heist, and they are just kicking off season two of that. Our thanks to Gene Lee from the Wilson Center and author and journalist Jeff White for taking the time to speak with us. We do appreciate it. We hope you check out their show. We want to thank all of you for listening, and of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are experts at enabling a fully integrated approach to security awareness training.
That is our show. We'd like to thank you all for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 